0: Thank you, Sarah. That was great. Even had three points and everything. I'm very impressed. We're gonna, I'm going to try this mic tonight because I just found out they have this mic and it sounds a little clearer. Uh, we're still in this fight to like overcome the echo in the room. So can you, can you guys hear me okay using this mic? All right. Sounds good. As you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the service, this is the last Sunday of the season of Eastertide. And maybe this is new for you, maybe not, but Eastertide is a seven-week season of feasting where the church around the world celebrates, that is, revels in and meditates upon the central fact of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is worth spending seven weeks celebrating and pondering. It's a time where we especially uh, consider how to live in light of Easter, right? If this thing is true, if, if if Christ really is risen from the dead, if the gospel is true, how shall we live? How now shall we live? What kind of people ought we to be? Or as we've been asking in this last part of our series in the Gospel of Mark, what are we raised with Christ for? So we've been going back through the the Gospel of Mark, looking at passages where Jesus was showing us what kind of life he was going to call us to because of his death and resurrection. And we've seen things like we are raised to serve, we are raised with him to trust, we're raised to believe, raised to love, and last week we were raised to a new family. And today, what I want us to consider, we're going to go to Mark 13, and I want us to consider how we are raised to hope. We are raised to hope. As our call to worship has said throughout Easter, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is that? What is living hope? What does it mean to be a hopeful people in an often hopeless world? That's what I wanna explore tonight. And our, our passage is actually about the second coming of Jesus, which is really interesting for, since this is Ascension Sunday, So Ascension Sunday celebrates how Jesus ascended into heaven. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says that Jesus was lifted up and then a cloud took him out of the disciples' sight. And interestingly, the disciples were standing there gazing into heaven, like you do when you see a man just rise into heaven. And then two angels come and here's what they say. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. In other words, he's going to return on the clouds as well. So I find it interesting, even on the very first ascension day, they were already looking forward to when he would come again, in the same way that he left. He ascends on the clouds and he will descend again one day when he returns on the clouds. And we're going to focus on that latter part in our sermon today. But we got to admit something up front before we get into it, okay? Because I'm always honest with you, okay? These these are some of the strangest things we believe as Christians, right? We can acknowledge that. Jesus ascending and descending on the clouds. Even C.S. Lewis, the, the great... Uh, skeptic that became a Christian. Even he said, though we cannot dispense with the Ascension because of how important it is theologically, Lewis said he was a little embarrassed by the Ascension, like the idea of Jesus floating up like a hot air balloon or or an astronaut or a missile. And this kind of feels like Mary Poppins stuff, right? And these are certainly things uh, that the world likes to make fun of us about. I listened to a a fellow PCA pastor's sermon on this passage this week. And he reminded me of an episode of The Simpsons that I had forgotten about. (laughs) In this episode, Homer gets interested in the rapture. Anybody seen this one? And he starts reading a book called Rapture for Dummies. And and he tells Marge, the rapture is nigh. And this book is going to help me figure out how Nigh. And then he Yeah, no, right. Then he pulls out this whiteboard and he starts writing out this elaborate formula based upon the numbers in the book of Revelation. And he's like, you know, carry the one. And he concludes that the rapture is gonna happen at 3:15 p.m. on May the 18th. Which is, interestingly is two days away, so wouldn't that be something? That'd be that'd be amazing. So what do you do when you found out that the rapture is gonna happen in a week in that episode? Well Homer dons a sandwich board sign that says, the end is near, and he starts walking through the the streets of Springfield and he starts shouting, the world will end next week. All right, so what's going on? What's happening? Well, in the Simpsons' satirical style, they're making fun of us. They're making fun of what we believe. They think we're crazy for believing this stuff. Maybe sometimes you think you're crazy for believing this stuff. Interestingly, though, towards the end of the episode, this is so fascinating, Homer's daughter, Lisa, the rational one, she says, Dad, we love you, but we just don't think the world is coming to an end. Yet, A 100 years, global warming, we're goners. But for now, could you just lighten up on the left-below stuff? Which I find that so fascinating. You see, actually most everyone thinks the world is going to come to an end in some fashion. Whether it's through the return of Jesus, or global warming, or a mega asteroid, or a super volcano, or a nuclear holocaust, or because the sun is going to engulf the earth and we have to go live on Mars, right? We all think it's, this isn't going to last forever. And when it does, when it ends, everybody wants to be found prepared or ready. Ready? living faithfully according to what they believe, right? So if you think it's all going to end through global warming, then you want to be found with solar-powered panels on your house, right? You want to live consistently. Or if you think it's going to end through a nuclear bomb, you want to be found lobbying your senator for better nuclear weapons policies. See, the truth is, we're all crazy. (laughs) Every one of us. The question is, which kind of crazy are you? We all think the world is going to end somehow, and we all want to live faithfully in light of what we believe, so as to say, I did what I was supposed to be doing. So, then let's look today at the Christian accounts of the end of the world. The Christian account and how we should live now in the present, in light of what is to come. That's what everybody's seeking. That's what we're seeking, too. Let's hear the distinctively the Christian account Let's hear the account of distinctively Christian hope. How how we can become a people of hope in a hopeless world. All right? Disclaimer done. Would you stand for the reading of the gospel lesson? This is Mark 13, verses 24 to 27, and then verses 32 to 37. Just hear the word of the Lord. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight. When the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all stay awake. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we talk about something um, that is your word, even though it sometimes makes us nervous or makes us feel the ridicule of the world, Lord, I pray you would come to us now and you would speak. Lord, these are holy, infallible, wonderful words before us, given to us by the Holy Spirit, who even now speaks to us, even through my words. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to speak now and help us to see Jesus as more beautiful, as more believable. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Alright, when we start talking about the study of last things, or what the theologians call eschatology, everybody wants to know two things, right? The two questions are, when? When is this going to happen? And two, what will be the signs that will help me get ready? All right, those, are, those are the questions we generally bat around. When? And what are the signs to let me know it's coming? In fact, these are the exact questions that the disciples were asking earlier in this chapter. We didn't read it. Early in chapter 13, verse 4, the disciples said, Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? See the questions? When? What's the sign? Now, Mark 13, if we read the whole thing, it's famously difficult to interpret. Because Jesus kind of goes back and forth between talking about events that will happen more imminently, as in within a generation, within the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and things that will happen more distantly in the future when Jesus returns again. It's interesting, for Jesus or for Mark or whoever put this together, these are two like cataclysmic events that share similar themes and so Jesus is kind of bouncing back and forth between the more imminent thing with the temple and the more future thing with the second coming of Jesus. But our passage is definitely deals with the more distant event of the return of Jesus. And yet these, these same two questions remain. When will it happen? What are the signs that will help us be ready? So those are our two points tonight, right? Two questions. When will the end happen? What sign will help us be ready? First of all, when? When will this happen? You ready? The answer is I don't know. (laughs) You don't know, we don't know. Jesus says it plain enough in verse 32 but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Brothers and sisters, if the angels in heaven don't know, if not even the Son knows, You best believe that no one knows but the Father. Not Homer Simpson, not Harold Camping, not anyone else. You would think people would stop trying to figure it out, but they don't, do they? See, friends, not even Jesus knows, which is really fascinating, and I I would love to get into what that theologically means, but I think it's this wonderful expression of Jesus' ongoing identification with us as a true human being. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I have to wait and to watch and to hope with you. I don't even know. But here's the point, friends. Jesus does not tell us when. He tells us that. The emphasis is not on when it will happen, but that it will happen. The key is not being obsessed with knowing when, but in knowing that and having confidence in that. How can you know? How can you know that it will happen? It's simple. Because Jesus says it will. Because Jesus says so, and Jesus never lies, never has, and he never will. In those days, verse 26, Jesus says, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. If he says it, it will happen. Way back in Deuteronomy 18, God told us that one day he's going to send us a prophet like Moses, who will speak the word of God to us in truth. And then he also told us how we would know that he is the true prophet, and how we could trust his words. Listen to it, Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Brothers and sisters, every one of Jesus' words has come to pass. Every one of them. Therefore, you can have 100% confidence that these words will also come to pass because Jesus is that true prophet. And he will not lie to you. You can trust him. See, our hope is not in knowing when, but in knowing that, because our confidence is, the, is in the one who speaks it. Right elsewhere in this chapter, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words. Will not pass away. They will stand forever. You can bank your life on them. Jesus doesn't tell us when. He tells us that, but he also tells us who. He tells us who. He tells us who it is that will be coming. It's the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout all the Gospels because it emphasizes his humanity and his humility. See, though Jesus is God, even though he is completely equal with the Father in power and glory, he humbles himself to take on our humanity, to be born in our likeness. He humbles himself by taking the form of a servant, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This means, brothers and sisters, that the one who is coming, the Son of Man, yes, he now, he has all power and glory and authority because of his death and resurrection, but he is also the one who suffered for you. He's the one who knows your pain. He's the one that's walked in your shoes, who took all your sin and your shame upon himself, who even now is praying before you before from his ascended throne. See, that's what's most important. Not when, but who. The king is returning to make all things new. The king is returning, and we will dwell with him forever. Revelation 21 says, Then a loud voice is going to say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, here at our hope is not in knowing when, but in knowing who. Our hope is in him, every bit of it. Our hope is not in ourselves, in the church. Your hope is not in yourself to to get your act together or to be better or to figure it out. Our hope is in Jesus. I was talking this week with a friend uh, who was just saying she is so utterly disenchanted with the church in America right now. (laughs) I get it. I understand it. In her own words, she said, I'm bitter and I'm cynical and I know it. And even as I was studying for this passage this week, I was thinking and I said, then I guess it's good that our hope is not in the church, but in Jesus. That's the who. Our hope is that the Son of Man is going to come in the clouds with great power and glory and he's going to gather his elect, that is, his people to himself from every corner of the earth, which, by the way, means that the gospel has been preached to every nation, just like Jesus said. This is the who. It's the Son of Man, and it's his people. This great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. We don't know when, but we know that, and we know who. Secondly, What are the signs that will help us get ready? What are the signs? Everybody wants to know, what are the signs? What are the signs that the end is near so that we can know, right, it's time to get ready? And this is where it gets kind of interesting because Jesus throws out some possibilities throughout Mark chapter 13 if you read the whole thing. He says earlier that there's going to be widespread spiritual deception, which I find highly interesting. He says there's going to be a bunch of charlatans who seek to lead God's people astray. But he says that's not the sign, though. He says there's also going to be political and natural disasters, wars and rumor of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines. But Jesus says these are also not the signs. He says these are just the beginning of the birth pains. And then in our own text, Jesus mentions the famous tribulation, right? The tribulation, that is a time of intense suffering as Christians. Now, I don't have time to dive deeply into this, but I do not believe that this is a set number of years. But it's just a general description of of the kind of world that we will live in. We will live in a world, we do live in a world that is hostile to Jesus and to his people. Jesus says, you will be hated for all, by all, for my name's sake. You hear that? You will be hated by all, for my name's sake. He says that hatred and division might even be within your own family, brother against brother, father against child and children against parents. See what Jesus is doing? He's painting a picture of a world that is in cosmic upheaval. In our passage, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Brothers and sisters, I do not understand these things to be literal events, but metaphors for a world that is descending into chaos. Think about it. It is the complete opposite of Genesis chapter 1. It is, it is uncreation. In the beginning, God gave the sun and the moon to light the day and to night, but now they're going to be darkened. All right? God put the stars in place, but now they're falling from the sky. God firmly established the world on a sure foundation, and now... It is shaken. See, metaphorically, Jesus is depicting a world that is deeply troubled, that is uncreating itself. It's moving from beauty back to chaos and disorder and death. But, brothers and sisters, even those are not the signs. The only sign that Jesus gives us, the only sign that the end is near, is the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. That's the sign. In the midst of a world gone mad, Jesus is going to come for his people. He's going to come and he's going to gather them to himself. Jesus says, this is the authentic sign. And it comes from this cherished prophecy from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Listen to it. This is the sign Daniel gave. This is the sign Jesus says will be the sign of the end. But you need to catch the significance of this. If the only sign is the event itself, the return of the king, if there are no other signs to tell us to get ready, then how are we to make sure that we are prepared? Jesus' answer? Live ready all the time. Live ready all the time. If you're always ready, then you don't have to worry about not being ready. Friends, listen to Jesus' words again. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. And it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, you stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake friends in this parable you are the doorkeeper and the doorkeeper has one job you have one job stay awake stay awake what does it mean to be awake well i think it means seeing the priority of today today This is a theme throughout the scripture. The the psalmist says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. In other words, friends, do not delay about getting serious about Jesus. We always live with this, this thought that there's always time. There's always time. I'll do it later. I'll do it after I graduate. Maybe after I settle down, maybe after I have kids, I'll do it when it's a more favorable time. The Apostle Paul wrote, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. John Wesley, the famous theologian, once asked, well, he was once asked what he would do if he knew it was his last day on earth. You know what he said? He said, at four o'clock, I would have some tea. At 6, I would visit Mrs. Brown in the hospital. Then at 7.30, I would conduct a midweek prayer service. At 10, I would go to bed and would wake up in glory. In other words, I'll do what I do every day. Every day. Brothers and sisters, that means if you would substantially change your life, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, you may not be awake. I mean, we would all try to change our life a little bit, right? But I'm saying if you would overhaul the whole thing, then you may not be awake. Being awake is being found faithful today. Not perfect, not awesome, not successful. Always faithful. Faithful today until, the, until today becomes the day when the master of the house returns. What does it mean to be awake? It means embracing the audacity of hope. It means not being surprised by the suffering of the world, by your own suffering. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It means not giving in to apathy or complacency, or cynicism, or despair. Because underneath all of our suffering and all of our doubts and all of our questions is this sure knowledge that the throne of heaven is not empty. It is occupied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign God, who is the creator of all things and is the judge of all men. The king's going to come to his people just as he promised it's going to be a day of rejoicing for the suffering people of God. And it'll be a day of mourning for all who rejected his Son. John 3, 17 says it like this, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does it mean to be awake? It means to have a constant living hope that this world is never as bad as it could be, or is never as good as it gets, and yet the best is coming. The best is yet to be. This quote by J.I. Pack- uh, Packer moved me so much this week, I put the whole thing in the front of your bulletin. I'm trying to understand what does it mean to be awake. Friends, it's not optimism. Listen to Packer's word. Optimism is a wish without a warrant. Christian hope is certainty. Guaranteed by God himself, optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. That's the audacity of hope. See, friends, the sign of the end is the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. And therefore, we are called to live hopeful, faithful, watchful lives by the grace and by the Spirit of God. Two weeks ago, some of you guys know this, I posted in Slack. I attended my first pastor's conference for the first time in over a year and a half. And it was wonderful. It was delightful. It was small. It's like 20 church planters from all over the world got together at St. Simon's Island in Georgia for three days of fellowship and feasting and and theological collaborating on the mission of the church in a post-Christendom world. It's it's wonderful. And what we do is we read these papers and then we, like, discuss them. And one of the papers that we read uh, was intriguingly titled, (laughs) here's the title, ready for it, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? (laughs) It's a great question. It's a great paper. Like, why did millions and millions of people, in fact, embrace the Christian faith, though it meant also embracing significant social costs? Ridicule, ridicule, harassment, hatred, persecution. Like, we were were looking at this because post-Christendom, where we're living now, is starting to match pre-Christendom. In that being a Christian today also comes with a significant social price tag. When even very central Christian beliefs are labeled by the world as bigoted or unacceptable. We feel this, right? We feel this tension. So why in the world did anyone want to become a Christian back then? Why would anyone want to do so today? One word. Hope. Hope. Hope in a hopeless world. A common inscription that was on burial, on burial monuments in the first three centuries, centuries reveals the hopelessness of that era. Listen, this was seen all over several burial monuments. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That is a world in hopelessness. In, and into this dark abyss, Christianity was like a shining light. For proclaimed what the world deemed unthinkable, that an all-powerful and a personal God loves you. So much so that he sent his son to take our sin and our misery upon himself. So much so that he will send him again to make all things new. And we will live with him forever. With resurrected bodies in a resurrected world with no more sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. This is why. Hope. Living hope. Hope. Hope that is an anchor for the soul in a hopeless world. Brothers and sisters, what a matchless gift from our risen Jesus. That we are raised with him to this hope. Amen. Let me pray let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we, have, we know what it's like to feel that hopelessness. To feel like our life is but a breath and to wonder what it's all for. And sometimes to wonder if we even care. Lord, <laughs> well, thank you that the gospel speaks into our hopelessness. And it speaks a word of hope if we would dare to believe it. So, Lord, I pray for us that we would hear these words and they would sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, into ourselves. That by your grace, we would become a people of hope in a hopeless world. That this would make it worth it to suffer whatever we have to for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Savior. For the sake of being raised up with him in the end. Thank you for this hope that you are making all things new. I pray you would sustain us all the days of our life. and pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.